it's interesting, just this heart for the nations that God has, in which he's always wanted to see people come to know him, and yet, unfortunately, God's people have at times gotten in the way of his heart of reaching Gentiles who are far from God. We see it in Jonah, who was um, reluctant to go to Nineveh. We see it with the disciples who were reluctant to go to the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. We see it even with the religious leaders of Jesus' day who were upset with Jesus because he wanted to go to the Gentile cities of Tyre and Sidon. It is the heart of God to see all people come to a saving knowledge of the truth, and yet at times it's his own people who have said, no, I don't want to go do that. But it's interesting to me that there is especially a people group that the Jews hated and did not want to reach. And that people group are the Samaritans. Now, it's important for us, as we're going to look in Acts chapter 8, about who these Samaritans are. So what I'm going to do is cover 1,500 years of history in about three minutes. Can you hang with me for a moment? Let's do it. In the book of Exodus, we see where God's people are able to escape Pharaoh in captivity and they get to leave Egypt and they head towards the promised land. On their way there, they reject the Lord. They do not trust him. And so God says, you're going to stay in the desert for 40 years. After the 40 years is up, the generation that's 20 years old and older eventually dies off at the time of disobedience, where now the people are on the brink of going into the promised land under their fearless leader, Joshua. Once they go into the promised land, they conquer the land and then divide it up into territories, one for each of the tribes of Israel. At the end of Joshua's life, they enter into a time of the judges, where the people of God just repeatedly, continually turn their hearts away from the Lord. God raises up these judges, these saviors, who step in to rescue them from their, their hearts turning away from God, and God saves them. And the cycle repeats over and over and over for about 300, 400 years. But then eventually the people say, we want a king. And God says, well, I will be your king. And they no, 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 we want a king like the nations around us. And so God says, you know what you're asking, but okay. So God gives them King Saul, who starts well, does not finish well. God removes Saul. God raises up David as the new king over Israel. After David comes his son Solomon. After Solomon, that's when things get dark. The kingdom of Israel is divided. Or the nation of Israel is divided into two kingdoms the northern kingdom, and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is ten tribes led by Jeroboam, and the southern kingdom is two tribes called Judah, and that's led by Rehoboam. Eventually, we see in the northern kingdom, they only have wicked kings. There was not a single king in the northern kingdom who would point them to Yahweh. Eventually, God would judge them through the nation of Assyria. Assyria comes in, sacks the northern kingdom, takes them into captivity in which they would never return. And as the people are taken out, new people groups move into the northern kingdom. These new different cultures, they have different gods that they worship. And the Israelites in the northern kingdom, who were a remnant who stayed behind, began to intermarry with these foreign people, these Gentiles. And eventually what we have are these people called the Samaritans. They were hated by the Jews. They were considered half-breeds, half-Jewish, half-Gentile. 
These were a people who thought that worship took place up north at Mount Gerizim, not in Jerusalem. And so there was this tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. It was so bad that if you can imagine a map right here, that the southern part of Jerusalem and Judea is here, Samaria is just north, and above that is Galilee. That whenever someone from Galilee wants to go south down to Jerusalem, or from Jerusalem north up to Galilee, they don't go through Samaria. Right on the side is the Jordan River, and so they would cross over the Jordan River, travel up north or south, and then cross back over to avoid going through Samaria. They didn't want to come in, talk, come in contact with these dirty, rejected people. When we get to Acts chapter 8, we see where God raises up a man named Philip who takes the gospel to the Samaritans. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and let's look at Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. I love what's happening in the book of Acts, this great historical narrative of how the church began and what began with Jesus in Acts chapter 1 where he ascends up into heaven and sits down at the right hand of God the Father. He promises the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and he does in Acts 2. You're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We've seen where the church has been established through chapters 2 through 7. They're following Jesus, imperfect, but still following Christ together. But then Stephen steps up, preaches the gospel to the Sanhedrin. He is murdered for his faith in Christ, for boldly preaching the gospel to the Sanhedrin, for calling them out for their hypocrisy. He is stoned to death, and so the church scatters. They are running for their lives. They are terrified of being caught by these Jewish leaders, these Jewish leaders, as they are pouring out these murderous threats against the church. So believers are running for their lives, and as they're going, they're preaching the gospel. And this is where we pick up in Acts chapter 8, beginning with verse 4. The scripture says, So those who were scattered went on their way preaching the word. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said as they listened and saw the signs he was performing. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. A man named Simon had previously practiced sorcery in that city and amazed the Samaritan people while claiming to be somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least of them to the greatest. And they said, this man is called the great power of God. They were attentive to him because he had amazed them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Even Simon himself believed. And after he was baptized, he followed Philip everywhere and was amazed as he observed the signs and great miracles that were being performed. When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. After they went down there, they prayed for them so the Samaritans might receive the Holy Spirit because he had not yet come down on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus." Then Peter and John laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. 
When Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone I lay my hands on may also receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter told him, May your silver be destroyed with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this matter, because your heart is not right before God. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, your heart's intent may be forgiven. For I see you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by wickedness. Pray to the Lord for me, Simon replied, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. So after they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they traveled back to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Luke tells the story of Philip a deacon in the early church who's been scattered due to persecution in Jerusalem. And as Philip is preaching the gospel throughout Samaria, people start coming to faith in Christ. This morning, I want you to see in the text God's power through preaching and how the gospel has impact on those who hear. The first thing I want you to see in the text is that gospel preaching produces great joy. Verse 5 says, Philip went down to a city in Samaria. Now that makes topographical sense because Jerusalem, also called Mount Zion, is up on a mountain. In fact, to go in any direction is to go down. Now the way that we say it here is that, hey, I'm going to go down to the beach. We all think south. It's directional. But that's not what's happening here. When he says he's going to go down, it means he's going to go down from Jerusalem. And as we see Philip going down from Jerusalem, he goes towards Samaria. Now, Samaria, this can be kind of, kind of tricky sometimes, is that it's a city and it's a region. It's the capital city of the northern kingdom. So it's a city, but it's also a region. But we have the same thing here, right? So New York, New York. It's both a city and a state. Well, in Scripture, Samaria is both a city and a region. And as Philip goes into Samaria, do you see what he's doing? Verse 5, he's preaching the gospel. What's interesting to me is this comparison that Luke is giving us between Stephen in Acts 7 and Philip in Acts 8. Where Stephen was a powerful preacher, Philip is an effective evangelist. Two different types of godly men, two different types of giftings, and two different lengths of lives. You think about Stephen, a man whose life was cut short through martyrdom. Then you've got Philip. From what we can tell from the book of Acts, he had a rather long life, a rather long ministry. May I say to you, God has called each of us to a task. You have an assignment from the Lord. How long that lasts is not up to you. Ultimately, it is up to the Lord. You see, Stephen dies quickly, and, and we see Philip who lives longer, and God has different plans and purposes for each of them. I, I put this on your notes. Let God decide the length of your life in ministry. You decide to be faithful to the task of making disciples. I love John 21 because it's just this sweet moment where Jesus restores Peter, right? You know, after Peter had denied him three times, Jesus restores him three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love, love me? Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. And then Jesus tells Peter what kind of death he's going to die. 
He says, Peter, there are going to be some men who are going to take you where you don't want to go. And you're going to stretch out your arms. And since Jesus is communicating, you're going to die through crucifixion. And Peter, with John sitting there next to him, says, but what about him? And I love Jesus' response. He says, what is that to you? You follow me. You see, the comparison game is a terrible game to play because you always lose. Because if you compare yourself with someone else and you think you're better than them, there's pride and arrogance. You compare yourself to someone else and you're not as good as them, there's inferiority and there's pride. You lose each time. What's interesting here is that God has different plans for each of these men and God has different plans for each of us. You and I do not decide when our last breath will take place. The Lord decides that. You and I cannot control the breadth of the impact of our lives. God decides that. You be faithful with what God has entrusted to do with your assignment. Don't compare yourself to what other people do. What about him? What about her? You be faithful with what God has entrusted to you. God uses Stephen and his short life just as much as he uses Philip and his long life. You let God be the one who dictates the effectiveness and fruitfulness of your life in ministry. But as Philip is preaching, verse 6, he's seeing favor. The crowds are paying attention. They're listening. And as he's preaching, they're believing the gospel. Verse 12, both men and women are being baptized. Don't miss the significance of that there in verse 12 that both men and women are coming to Christ and being baptized. I love how Luke, throughout the book of Acts, is elevating women. He's regularly holding up women. Back in that day and culture, women were property. Your job was to stay home, to cook meals, to have babies, and to raise them. That's it. That's your job. But what we see in the scriptures, especially in the life and ministry of Jesus and the church, is that they are regularly elevating women with, to give them value. There's a sense in which those who have misogynistic arguments against scripture haven't read it. God makes the ground level at the cross where both men and women have equal access to the throne of grace. That believers in Jesus are made up of both men and women. That you can boldly come to the Lord. And that's what's happening here. And not only are these Samaritans listening to Philip, they're giving their lives to Christ. There's this movement where these people who were hated by the Jews are now surrendering their lives to Jesus. And the people, as they're hearing the gospel... The gospel is being validated by miracles. The people, they're in awe as demons are being cast out of people, as the paralyzed and the lame are walking. I mean, you, I mean talk about a work of God where he is validating the message with the miracles. You see, the purpose of miracles was to point to the gospel. Remember, miracles were not an end in and of themselves. Miracles were temporary and secondary. They were temporary that they were for a brief time in the early church. 
And they were secondary because it's not the primary purpose of the ministry. It was designed by God to validate the message. The gospel was primary. The word of God taking center stage in the heart, rhythm, life, and culture of the church was God's design. You even see it throughout the ministry of Jesus is that though he would perform miracles, they were designed to point to something else, namely himself. What's amazing here is that these miraculous works are taking place and they are solidifying, they are authenticating, they are legitimizing the message of the gospel. Got to remember, the early church is in its infancy stage. There was not all of these years in which they've seen the work of the Lord in the life of the early church. It's a brand new baby. And so God authenticates the gospel message that's being preached through the apostles and his church through the miraculous. And did you see what it leads to? Verse 8, great joy in that city. Christy and I have really gotten into a TV show lately called The Chosen. I'm not sure if you've seen it yet or not, but it's a phenomenal um, show talking about, it shows the life and ministry of Jesus and the 12 disciples. And it really gives texture and storylines that are plausible that are to the scripture. It's really good. And we really enjoy watching that. And one of my favorite scenes is the last episode of season two, where Jesus meets the woman at the well. This Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 who comes out to the water well. And in this scene, this woman comes out, she is dirty, she's exhausted, she's bitter, she's lonely, she's angry. And even as she is dismissive towards Jesus with her attitude, and Jesus is gentle and kind and truthful, And he begins to unpack the baggage of her past like a trained TSA agent sorting through luggage. He's bringing to bear all the things that she has done, how she's been married five times and the man that she's living with now is not her husband. And she begins to realize, oh my goodness, this guy, he's a prophet. And Jesus reveals himself to her as the Messiah. And the season ends with this woman leaping and jumping and sprinting back into town, screaming at the top of her lungs with laughter. This, come meet a man who's told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? It's this incredible moment where she comes out just full of depression and anger and selfishness and then she encounters Jesus. And she sprints back to town and can't wait to tell the world about what Christ has just done in her life. And beloved, for we who are the church, who are here now, today, at this season of life in the history of the world, we are to bring great joy to this city by preaching Christ, showing the world who Jesus is, that the church is the visible, touchable Christ on earth, that when people see us, they should see Jesus, and that it brings joy to the sea as they encounter this gospel. Now, this, this idea of the miracles that we're seeing in the book of Acts, question, why are they not happening today? Well, it's because there's an even greater miracle that takes place, and I'm looking at a room full of them. It is salvation that takes place in the lives of people. We now have thousands thousands of years in which the Holy Spirit has validated and substantiated the truths of the gospel. 
So we don't need the miracles to confirm the message. We have the written word of God in our laps. And yet simultaneously, the greatest miracle that we get to experience is salvation. Is I'm looking across a room of people who used to be dead. But now you're alive. Like you were spiritually in dark, but now you're in the light. What greater miracle could there be? Is people who were once enemies of God are now friends of God. That your heart has been changed by the gospel. That someone loved you so much to tell you about Jesus and the Holy Spirit took their words, planted them within your heart, and you trusted in Christ. That's the miraculous. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That the resurrection power of Jesus is at work here and now. That's the miraculous. And the gospel leads to great joy. The second thing we see happening in the text is that as the gospel is preached, it attracts false converts. As Simon the magician, an influencer in Samaria, saw the work of God through Philip, he believed. He wanted to get in on this, but his motives for believing the gospel were selfish. As he's following Philip around, seeing the miracles he's performing, Simon becomes greedy. He, he covets the power. Meanwhile, the apostles who are stationed back in Jerusalem hear that Samaritans are coming to faith in Christ. So Peter and John leave Jerusalem. They go north to Samaria to check things out. Okay, what's really happening with these half-breeds, these people of the northern kingdom, these Samaritans. Well, upon arrival, they realize, oh, snap. The gospel's taken root. These people are for real. The people have believed. And so the apostles, they prayed that the Holy Spirit would come upon them. They lay hands on them and pray for them. Now, we need to press pause there for just a moment. As your pastor, it's important that I help shape your theology with Scripture, Okay. And there are some who try to take verse 15 and argue that the Holy Spirit comes upon believers after salvation and the, through the laying on of hands. I, I don't think that's accurate. I think what's happening in Acts 8 is a unique circumstance that's based upon the newness of the early church. Okay, the church was still in its infancy. Peter and John make the trip to Samaria to authenticate what they have heard and to put the apostolic stamp of approval upon this new group of believers. Now, what's happening in Acts 8 is this transitional period in which the apostles need to confirm the authenticity of the faith of this new group of people. They're trying to make sure the, the, the church is unified. They're trying to protect the unity of the church. And the, Samar the Samaritans needed to receive the Spirit in the presence of church leaders from Jerusalem. I think that this is a unique circumstance because it's a transitional period, as again, as the church is in its infancy. As we'll see later on through Paul's writings and letters, this is not the case. Believers receive the Holy Spirit the moment you believe the gospel. When you trust in Christ, whether you're a six-year-old at VBS or a 96-year-old at your kitchen table, when you trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes into your life. He, Ephesians 1 seals you until the day of redemption. 
So what's happening here of where the Holy Spirit coming through the apostles laying on of hands is a unique circumstance. But it's validating that this gospel that's taking root among these half-breeds, these Samaritans, is legit. These guys and girls are putting their faith in Christ. Well, Simon the magician, he wants in on some of that. He likes seeing the power. He likes seeing the crowds. He likes seeing the influence. And so he brings money to Peter and John saying, give me this power. But power is not a reason to believe the gospel. We believe the gospel because we know that we are spiritually broken. We are lost without Christ that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But God pursued us in the gospel by sending his son Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins. That Jesus had his blood shed so that you could be washed and forgiven. That you come to Christ because you know you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And Jesus is that perfect Savior who bled and died on your behalf and rose again on the third day. That the one who defeated death now abides and lives inside of you. So now sin and death and hell no longer have sway or hold over you. You are free in Christ and God has set you free. You are forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. And you receive this not through money, but by grace through faith in Christ. You see, we come to Jesus not to get power. We come to Jesus to get Jesus. We come to Christ to get Christ. He is your treasure. He is your reward. And the beauty is that when Jesus is your greatest treasure, your treasure will never be taken from you. The greatest desire of your heart can never be taken by inflation or a bad stock market or a disobedient child or a pink slip or a miscarriage or a cancer diagnosis because your greatest reward is Jesus. He will never be taken away from you. You set your heart firmly upon Christ. For you put your faith in Jesus, he is yours both now and forever. Well, Peter sees right through Simon's motivations. He sees his heart. So Peter tells him, may your silver be destroyed with you. You can't buy salvation. The gospel is not for sale. You see, regardless of what religious leaders say today, your money cannot save you. Your money cannot purchase eternal life. And though there are people who will put an 800 number on a screen and say, if you send us money, you will receive the Spirit, you will receive the gift of salvation, that's hot garbage. Do not believe that. Stay away. Turn the channel. Let's see those ministries go bankrupt because it's hot garbage. You can't purchase the gospel. The gospel is free. It's for the poor. It's for anybody who's young and doesn't have a nickel to their name because Christ came and gave his life for all who humble themselves and trust in him. You can't buy the gospel. And here is Simon using his money to try and get this power. But Simon, he calls him out and says, man, you need to repent of that. 
And if you, you need to turn away from this because really bad things are coming upon you if you don't repent. But did you see Simon's response? Verse 24, pray for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. You see, Simon here, he does not want the consequences of his sin. He doesn't hate his sin. He hates the consequences of his sin. And that's a big deal. It's important that you realize, and this is a question for you, do you hate your sin? Or do you hate the consequences of your sin? The difference is the difference between heaven and hell. You see, believers, we hate our sin. We look at our hearts and we grieve over how daily, if not hourly, our hearts wander from the Lord. And we, we woe is me. Come on, Lord. I, come on, soul. Come back to the Lord. You know, there's this grief. And you're not home yet. There's this struggle. By the way, that's a mark that you're a believer, is that you hate your sin. But unbelievers, they don't hate their sin. They hate the consequences of their sin. They hate what happens when they get involved with that sin. And there's danger. You see, the mark of a believer is that you have turned from your sin. You keep turning from your sin. Repentance is continual. And you have Christ living inside of you. Jesus told us it would be this way. In Matthew 13, he tells the parable of, come on, Bruce. It's a parable, I see it. Matthew 13. Got it right there. I had it written down. There it is. Wheat and the tares. Y'all, memory's hard when you turn 40. (laughs) I'm losing hair, gaining weight, and I'm forgetting things. Parable of the wheat and the tares. The wheat and the tares. Matthew 13, an enemy comes, plants the weeds amongst this wheat field. The farmer realizes, oh my gosh, what's happened? The servants say, hey, should we go and just wipe out all of the the tares, all of the wheat? And he says, no, let them grow up and we'll sort them at harvest. And the idea is that the wheat and the tares, they almost look identical. They look very similar on the outside. The difference is that the wheat has a kernel of seed on the inside. A tare does not. You see, a mark that you're a believer, a mark that you are the wheat is that you have Christ inside of you. It's my question is, do you have Jesus inside of you? If you have Christ, you're gonna begin to hate your sin. Not not, not hate you as an image bearer, you hate where your heart leads you away from the Lord and you long to come back to Christ and to stay with Christ and you wanna turn from it. The difference is, is that this guy, Simon, he doesn't hate his sin. He hates the consequences of his sin. And what's scary is you and I live here in the South where there are many people who think they're believers when they're not. That though on the outside they might look like they're Christians, but on the inside there is no seed of Christ. And it's such a dangerous position to be in to think that you are right with God when you're not. And it is concerning to me to think of how many millions of people are convinced they're in Christ when they do not have Jesus. Here is Simon. Here's a guy. He heard the gospel. He saw the miracles. He professes faith in Christ. He gets baptized. But he's never been born again. 
If you opened him up, there is no Christ. Question, do you have Jesus living inside of you? Has Jesus taken up residence in your heart and life? Or are you just playing the game? Playing the religious game, playing the church game, putting up the mask, the facade, acting a certain way. But deep down, you don't, there's no Christ here. There's danger there. Please do not hold on to your pride and think you have to keep up a front to impress people. Hear me, you don't have to impress me. Please don't try to impress me. Don't, don't, don't say, oh my gosh, what's Kenneth going to think about me? What's this church going to think about me? I'm going to celebrate. See, now I'm so proud of you. I mean, way to go. You humbled yourself. You turned from your sin. You trusted in Christ. Oh, the joy that takes place when you humble yourself. Say, man, I'm broken. But I need Jesus. And man, he will come into your heart and change your life. Because that's what he does. And you begin to hate your sin. You begin to hate anything that keeps you from being close and intimate with him. Oh, that you might trust in Christ. The third thing we see happening here is that gospel preaching is for all people. Did you see that Peter and John are on their way back to Jerusalem, verse 25? They're making these stops along the way at these Samaritan villages. And what are they doing, verse 25? They're preaching the gospel. Do you remember the last time John was in Samaria? John was there with his brother James. And Jesus is there. It's late. They're looking for a place to lay down for the night. They're headed towards Jerusalem. And on their way, they come into a Samaritan village that say, uh-uh, Jesus, you ain't coming in. You and your disciples can go on somewhere else. And James and John turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, do you want us to pray and ask for fire to be brought down to consume all these jokers? God is so patient with us. Aren't you glad Jesus is patient with us? Jesus rebukes them. Because Jesus knew that not long after this, John, you're coming back. And you're going to be going from town to town. And you're going to be preaching the gospel. What happened? The Holy Spirit changed John. And he no longer saw Samaritans as half-breeds, as enemies, as those people. He saw them as a mission field. He saw them as the people whom God has called him to go and reach with the gospel. Question, who are those people to you? Maybe it's people of a different religion, people of a different skin color, people of a different political opinion. And you find yourself getting angry, frustrated, maybe even bitter towards those people. May I say to you, would you today repent of that attitude? Ask the Lord to give you a supernatural love and compassion for people who are far from God. And ask him to give you the opportunity to take them the gospel. In fact, that's your impact point. It's this. Identify who those people are in your community and preach the gospel. That's what the apostles are doing in verse 25. They're going to those people, those Samaritans. But they're not angry or calling down fire from heaven to consume them. 
They're pointing them to a Savior who loves them and died for them, who gave his life for them at the cross. You see, you and I used to be those people. We were a people who were far off. We were a people who were on the outside looking in until someone loved us and prayed for us and shared with us the gospel. And God, by his grace, through the blood of Jesus, has taken you and I from outsiders and he's made us insiders. He's taken us from enemies and he's made us family. He's called you by name. He says, you belong to me. You're adopted into my family. My Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And now I'm sending you out to those people with the gospel. 